Amy said, I've been saving up for three days. I hope you're ready. I hope my voice holds out for us. Um, I'm enjoying the Minor Prophets. I hope you are. Sorry, Amy is not. She's bearing through. But I'm enjoying the Minor Prophets. I always find the Minor Prophets contemporary. And I hope you are. I hope you are listening and finding something that makes sense to you uh, even in 2022 as we go back so long ago. The name Micah means who is Yahweh. The name belongs to a prophet living 800 years before Jesus. I want you to remember that when I get to the end of my remarks. Who is Yahweh? Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, but unlike Isaiah, the minor prophet was not a designated religious authority. He came from a rural area, and like his counterpart Amos, he spoke without pedigree or stamp of approval from the Jewish establishment. His words would have been difficult enough to hear were he part of the establishment, but Micah was an outsider. Now, I won't belabor this setting because we've already reviewed the first half of the 8th century before Jesus, a time of great prosperity for Israel. Particularly true in biblical times, the peace in Israel has largely been dependent upon her neighbors as Israel faced challenges from rival nations. In the centuries of Israel's history, Israel has almost always been controlled by a neighboring king. In biblical history, it was Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, always controlled by someone. And if not completely controlled, Israel was often a vassal for one of the larger nations around, which limited its freedom and provided a constant sense of nervousness, if not paranoia, across the nation. But during the first half of the eighth century, the surrounding nations were preoccupied with each other, and this oversight allowed Israel, now divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah, it enjoyed the nation a time of peace and prosperity. As Amos reminded the people, however, prosperity was not an asset. Micah is as brutal as Amos in condemning the corruption of the nation and its leaders, in particular for their mistreatment of the poor in their midst. He says, Micah says, alas for those who devise evil deeds. They perform it because it is in their power. They covet fields and seize them houses and take them away. They possess householder and house, people and their inheritance. I keep telling you how contemporary these 2,800-year-old words should sound to our own ears. And if you think we are not guilty of coveting fields and houses of the poor, you need to talk with our friends Greg and Helms Gerald ministering through QC Family Tree to, Enderly, to Charlotte's Enderley Park neighborhood, and they can share with you in painful detail the plight of their poor neighbors whose homes and inheritances are being stripped away by a system called gentrification. Now, some see gentrification as the simple invisible hand of capitalism at work. 
The prophet calls it greed, evil. Having watched the demise of the northern kingdom as a result of this kind of infidelity to the, co to the covenant, forgetting to take care of the poor, Micah now warns Judah, God is also coming for you. Zion shall be plowed as a field, he says. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. These were hard words. It's the Old Testament's version of the evangelist who warns, turn or burn. The message is brutal, and it's hard to read, especially if we are willing to apply the central message to our own day. In addition to referring to the destruction of Israel, the prophet foresees the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Israel had been destroyed by the time Micah was writing by the Assyrians, so that was past tense. But he also foresees an event in the future, even calling the name of an invading Babylon. Well, how did this prophet know that 130 years later, Nebuchadnezzar would march his troops in and destroy Jerusalem. Is that what it means to be prophetic? To accurately predict the future? For some people, that is exactly what it means. They say the Bible is a different kind of writing. It's God's revealed words, maybe God's words. And since God controls all things, God is able to reveal the future to hand-selected prophets. In this view, the prophet simply records the words of the all-knowing God. And though today's text is past tense for us, even that prediction of Babylon, all of that is past tense for us, the value of prophecy, some say, is that God continues to reveal the future. And if we can read the Bible correctly, the actual events that will unfold in our future are foretold. God peels back the cover, and the prophets reveal the end of the world and the role that the U.S. and Russia and China and others will all play in the real-life drama that has already been choreographed. Many people believe that's exactly what the Bible is about. The Bible says Babylon would overthrow Jerusalem, and the proof of the Bible's divine origins is that this event did happen. But there's another way to understand prophecy. By studying the Bible, applying to it the same scrutiny that is applied to all other literature, scholars can discern layers of writing within a text. Determining, uh, determining by comparing ancient manuscripts and studying vocabulary and sentence structure, and just by reading what is obvious, that the little book of Micah, for example, was not composed in one writing by one man sitting in Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah. Some of this prophetic book was composed before the fall of Assyria, in seven to, of, of Israel to Assyria in 721. In reading the plain words, this is obvious. But likewise, the words about Babylon seem to indicate that the writer knew these events as historical. On the surface, it's fairly obvious the writer also has the knowledge of the fall of Jerusalem. Not a predicted event, but one that has already 
actually happened in history. The writer isn't predicting, sharing divine secrets. He's just telling it like it is, telling what he sees, telling what he already knows. So what's at at stake in these two very different viewpoints about prophecy? The first understanding may seem to indicate a higher view of Scripture. That is certainly what the folks who hold that view want you to believe, that there is a supernatural sense to all of this. God controls all things. God speaks. The Bible reveals the future if we can just interpret it correctly. But I want you to think, what would have to be true for that to be the case? What would have to be true if one prophet writing 130 years before the fall of Jerusalem could accurately predict that event? Think about it. Every subsequent action from that time of writing, every subsequent action would also have to be predetermined. The fall of Assyria and the rise of Nebuchadnezzar and the determination of each one of Israel's kings, every single event in human history would have to be choreographed, planned. Because if anything were to get in the way of the rise of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, then the prediction from Micah could not be true. And I just don't believe that's the way the world works. I don't believe God has put us in this world calling us to make moral decisions just to give us an illusion that we have freedom. All the while, working behind the scenes, pulling all the strings, making everything fall into its predetermined place. I just don't believe that's the way the world works. I believe there's real freedom in the world, freedom for nations and freedom for nature and freedom for human beings. So I believe the prophets are not predicting an already determined future. The future is open. I believe the prophets are helping us to see the present as it really is and to envision a future that could be if we responded. And this is a powerful, hopeful word because in this text, which in reality is a chorus of faithful voices. There was the original prophet. There were later writers. And there was a final editor who brought all of these voices together in the book called Micah. The prophet, those chorus of voices, the prophet uses contemporary illustrations, the world as life was happening at each moment of the writing The prophetic word speaks the best of God's wisdom as it is understood at the time, painting a picture of what the future could be. It's audacious to dare to say that this is what God wants, but that's what prophecy is, a daring vision for the world based on a daring understanding of who God is. So as brutal as the prophet is in his criticism of his own nation, the final word is not any prediction, but an affirmation of the gathered people, a people seeking after God. The final word after the harsh reality of violence, 
poverty, inequality, religious and political corruption all around. The final word is a word of hope. It's always a word of hope because according to the prophet, that is who God is. After all our failure, the prophet says, though God could destroy us, and that's probably what we deserve, the final word is hope based on the nature of God. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of your possession? What kind of God is it that we serve? As we look around our world today at all the corruption and destruction, let us remember the prophetic word and let us try to live into the love of a God who passes over transgressions to give love. Who is like Yahweh? May we be. We just returned from another wonderful week of children's camp. We call it Camp Prism. No, not prison, though it feels a tad like that some during the week. It's Camp Prism, and we've been going forever. Over the last three to four years, we have been performing weddings for those first children that we took to Camp Prism. Somewhere along the way, Russ started leading the music, and then he started writing a theme song for each year. Now, since children can only go to this camp three times, after third grade, after fourth grade, after fifth grade, well, we just recycle through the themes in a rotating fashion. We keep tweaking the schedule and updating the Bible study material to try and stay relevant and fresh. All of this is run by the ministers and pastors and children's ministers of all the churches that go. But the basic three themes remain the same. So we've got these songs really in our ears that Russ has been writing. This year, we were on the topic of creation. The power of our beginnings was the title. The first line of that theme song goes, In the beginning, it started with a very big bang. She bang, you see what he did there. And you have to get the timing just right on it. And the kids love that first line. In the beginning, it started with a very big bang. She bang, and they yell it at the top of their lungs. And there is nothing that makes Russ happier than to hear those children after about one full day together belting out his songs with all of their hearts. You know, all those great children's camp songs that we all know so well, like Eshoo Obfuscation. <laughs> yes, that is a song that we sing that he wrote, Eshoo Obfuscation. Russ can pack more words and more theology into a children's song than anybody I know, and they love it. And there is no tired like the kind of tired that you are when you come back from chaperoning children and youth summer camp. But it's that really, really good kind of tired. So some of you should go with us sometime. 
You might learn some new songs. But I'm not going to lie, I'm tired. <laughs> one of our themes that we rotate through, this, this year was creation, but one of the things that we rotate through, hopefully it'll be next summer, is simply called Do Love Walk. And it's based on the prophet's words in answer to the all-encompassing question, what does the Lord require of us? Putting faith into practice is what we want the children to understand. We love our lists, don't we? Just tell me what I have to do so I can check off the boxes and be done with that. But then again, we don't always like being told what to do. We like to figure it out for ourselves. I mean, if I have to start to figure out something by reading the manual, we are all in very big trouble. And if I have to follow the instructions for putting together anything, I get so easily overwhelmed by just even step one, and then there are all the screws and nuts and bolts, and then you end up with extra parts that were supposed to be used, and yet still they lie there in front of you. One time, many years ago, my sister and I put together a bicycle for her son, I'm not sure how we got tasked with that job. That is clearly not in our wheelhouse. But we got the instructions out, and step by step, we did it. It was when we got to that part about turning something, a specific amount of torque. And so we just picked up the wrench, and we said, one torque, two torques, three torques until we achieved the required number of torques in the instructions. The bike worked, no one got hurt. I'm thinking we followed the instructions and the requirements for putting together a bike very well. So it only makes sense that we want the same for our life of faith. Some instructions, please. What is required of me if I choose to follow God, it is a worthy question. Perhaps it's even why some of us come here to fulfill one of the requirements. Oh, how I wish that the prophet had suggested regular and faithful church attendance and participation as a requirement for following the Lord. But alas, being here did not make the cut. But if I can parenthetically say, it does not hurt. Or at least, I hope it doesn't hurt. I'm so grateful to be in community. In here and out there. Though if you're out there and you can come in here, it is so much easier to build community face to face. It's a new world and a new day, and I embrace it. But it is so much easier to do this face to face, is it not? But unfortunately for us, this isn't a requirement. But let's be honest. We would have liked it better if the requirements for faithful living were a bit more structured and specific. Now, I happen to not be a list maker. If you ever see me making a list, 
you can know that I am extraordinarily stressed. And I know that me saying that for you list makers is stressing you out sitting right there. But in this case, when asked what does the Lord re require, it would have been nice to have a list presented with some real specifics. Some burnt offerings and a calf or two, I could swing that. The thousands of rams may be hard to come by, and with the supply chain being what it is, 10,000 rivers of oil would be hard to get our hands on. And I would draw my line at giving my firstborn. So I guess it's a good thing that the requirements are given in broad strokes. Do, love, walk. That's all. And that's a lot. Actually, it's everything. Doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God pretty much encompasses every aspect of our lives. In all that we say, in all that we do, we are being called upon to make sure that justice prevails and mercy is granted while tending to our own inner core of walking humbly with God in each and every step of the journey. It sure would be easier just to write a check and call it a day. church history and spirituality professor wrote in a commentary, she says, to enact justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God are not single acts that can be checked off the list and left behind. On an individual and social scale, in ways large and small, this is a way of life. Periodic nods to equity do not constitute a faithful life. And then she goes on with some good examples. We cannot only observe racial membership quotas on committees in place of seeking racial justice. We cannot send checks for disaster relief and avoid examining the lifestyles that contribute, at least in part, to some natural disasters. We cannot do hunger walks and refuse to change our consumerist lifestyles. We cannot confess with our lips on Sunday morning and hold grudges at work on Monday. Rather than offer God thousands of rams, the prophet calls us to offer a thousand daily acts of love for each other and the world that God loves. Walking humbly with God means knowing our bent to self-righteousness. We cannot play church and frame our religious life as a game where we keep God in check by performing prescribed duties. The life of faith is indeed a walk that reorients our heart and our life. How do you need to be reoriented toward justice, mercy, and walking with God? I can hear it now as the sounds of the children ring out over the mountains of the Blue Ridge next summer. Russ's song about these requirements of God has a lot of clapping and thumping and stomping, but the children remember it forever. It's seven claps, four thumps, eight stomps. 
Half the room sings, do, love, walk, while the other half of the room sings, justly, mercy, humbly with our God. And then at the end, we all shout in unison with hands above our heads, do, love, walk. This is how the verses go, wordy as ever. (laughs) There's a wide world outside of me, so much to do, too much to see, decisions to make, choices at stake, who, what, where, when, why, for God's sake, do justly, love, mercy, walk humbly with our God, do love, walk. Oh, what does God require of me? How big will my gift have to be to please the Lord? What will it take? Just hands and heart and feet for God's sake. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. Do love, walk. And I wonder if the children catch the twist of the theology on verse 3. If I use my hands and give my heart, if my feet know how to do their part, we will find that God is great and these three rules are for our sake. You see what he did there? What does the Lord require? The Lord requires what we need. Justice. Mercy. God. If I use my hands and give my heart, if my feet know how to do their part, we will find that God is great. And these three rules are for our sake. Do justly, love, mercy, walk humbly with our God. Do love, walk. I really hate Russ is not in good voice. Or I would have him teach it to you today. So you could go about singing and shouting throughout the whole Queen City. You could tell them, people have been saying for centuries, what does God need? God needs justice, mercy, and folks to walk alongside. But then you could say, but I also learned when we gathered together in community that what God needs from us is what we need from each other. So maybe it's for the best that we can't sing it today because it's going to be a whole lot better if we just go about living it. Do, love, walk. That's all. May it be so. Amen. Join me as we pray together. Gracious and loving God, get our attention today. Help us to look for places in this world that need your justice and then make us your servants. Help us to look in this world today for places that need mercy and kindness. And then help us to be your servants. 
And help us find this day those who are walking the path alone. And let us walk beside them with you. For our world is in desperate need of justice, mercy, and you. And whatever measure of any of that that we have in our own lives, make us generous that we might be your people, your prophets in a current day and a current time that might make a difference for all the time out before us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.